Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I am your host, Daniel, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We are running some in-person courses this year, so do check it out at tkex.org, and we've got some interest for a Sydney-based course. So if you are interested, we can make it happen. Just reach out to us through the website or through our discussion group on Facebook. So joined today by Lee Schneider. He's a physiotherapist and a PhD candidate. We're going to discuss all things predictive processing, how it might impact and influence the way we practice and our approach when it comes to helping people experiencing persisting pain. So it's going to be a fascinating topic and I'm keen to get the the discussion started. So Lee, thank you for joining us from the other side of the country. Yeah, no worries. It's good to be here. Mate, for, for those who don't know you, what's your story? I love, I love this question. Um, and it's, yeah, it's something that I, I often ask my, my patients. Um, I, do, I do love that it just stimulates a very open discussion. Um, so when, yeah, when it comes to my story, I guess I think of what my therapy story is, um, you know, how I wound up as a physio and, uh, and it's kind of a, it's a, it's a story that uh, I'm one of these people that I, when I, when I get pulled in a direction, I'll, I'll go in that direction and explore it for a while. Um, and so I've been pulled in a lot of directions, um, even in the short period of time that I've been, been practicing. Um, but I guess I, I first got into physiotherapy or, or thought physiotherapy might be um, something worth exploring uh, when I was studying. I, I studied neuroscience before physio and I, I had this really keen interest in the brain and the nervous system and psychology and I got about halfway through my degree and I did a project on functional electrical stimulation for people with spinal cord injuries and I thought, this is really cool. You know, there's people out there whacking electrodes on, you know, people who've injured their spinal cord and allowing them to work muscles that they couldn't activate using, you know, using their nervous system. Uh, so I looked at the, like the job description for these kinds of things and there was physiotherapy. Uh, so, so I looked, looked into physio a little bit further and decided that, you know, I might actually like to be a physiotherapist. And I swapped degrees from neuroscience over to physiotherapy at the University of Notre Dame in Fremantle and uh, went through my teaching there. It was a fantastic university. There's some really keen minds there uh, thinking very critically about our profession. And about halfway through that degree, we did our pain unit and um, shout out to Associate Professor William Gibson. He's the, the, um, the teacher that I had for pain and a very, um, very passionate educator. Um, and he was able to take these really complex concepts and just distill them down into these really simple ideas. And it, it, just, it just clicked with me. And I also liked the idea that, you know, even in the, the world of musculoskeletal physiotherapy that I, I thought was quite structural and mechanical, that, that the brain and the nervous system were, were important, um, uh, not only from a, um, uh, an understanding of, of like pain, like the perception of pain, but, but 
in, in treatment too. So we were learning about things like laterality training and great motor imagery. And I thought this is just, this is just fantastic. Um, they would fuse together uh, physiotherapy and psychology and neuroscience, which was my, my previous interest. So that sent me down a bit of a pain pathway. And um, I guess I got, got known as the pain guy at university. So when, uh, whenever anyone had any kind of curious questions about pain, they would come to me and I would try to answer them. And if I couldn't answer the questions, then I'd go away and, and research it and try and understand it. Um, and this kind of caught on uh, around the uni and eventually Will asked me if I'd like to do a PhD or if I'd considered doing a PhD. And I said, no, and I'm not really that interested. I'm like, I want to be a, a clinician. I'm, I'm One of the reasons I moved from neuroscience over to physio was that it was going down a very uh, kind of laboratory-based um, pathway. And I didn't really want to be in a lab crunching the numbers. I wanted to be with people. And uh, so I got thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I realised that, like, if I really want to understand pain and, and dive into the nitty-gritty, then something like a PhD will allow me to do that and potentially give me you know, a stepping stone in which I can continue to do that as a career once I've finished my PhD. So I came back to Will and asked him if he was you know, still willing to take me on as a PhD. And he said, yep, that would be great. Um, and that got the ball rolling. And, and um, I graduated. And within six months of graduating, I, I started my, my PhD. And it's been, so that was 20, 2018. Uh, 2018, 2019, so it was a bit longer than six months. And, um, yeah, and I'm still kind of slowly chipping away at it. It's been a part-time endeavour, um, but I'm uh, starting to make some progress now, getting to the point where we're, we're going to be putting participants through the studies. And uh, I'm excited for that because I'm, I'm thinking that it's, um, it's going to be an interesting result. Fascinating. It's uh, combining now you, you're doing some clinical practice on the side. So you're combining that, that need, that urge that you had to, to not just be stuck behind uh, a desk and crunching numbers all your life, but still kind of uh, fueling that curiosity that you've always had to learn more, to dive into the depths of pain. So you've kind of combined both passions in one. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I'm the kind of person that if I was doing the same thing five days a week, I, I'd feel as though I was trapped. <laughs> um, and, you know, you get people out there who can, who can do that and commit themselves to the one endeavour. And I think about, like, clinical practice, five days a week of clinical practice every day is, is different. So in terms of choosing a job that does have variety, I think physio therapy and you know exercise physiology and these therapy professions are those kinds of jobs but I yeah I don't know if I could be patient facing five days a week um, uh, and having research as something to balance that is yeah, it, it works really well for for me and tell us more about your your research what what are you diving into with your PhD yeah so um, I guess that's where predictive processing comes into the picture 
predictive processing was this like very broad framework that at the beginning of my PhD, um, I was just given a bunch of articles and uh, I said, hey, read through these. Um, it seems like this is a direction that people are going uh, in thinking about pain and, and you know, what might be the, the mechanisms that occur behind the scenes in the generation of the pain experience um, and some of the, the, the behaviours that we see um, as well as the physiological processes that we see in pain. Um, and so I just dove into the literature and, and, and read a whole bunch and, and sort of started to, to get a grasp of, of this stuff. And I, I realised that it's actually very hard to, to construct an experiment that is like this is a predictive processing experiment. There are just kind of these general principles that you would expect to see um, if predictive processing were true. Um, and so you can kind of piece together a narrative that would suggest that predictive processing is uh, a way of understanding pain and pain experience. Um, but having a, you know, a single PhD that proves predictive processing as being true for pain is probably not, um, probably not a feasible thing. It's more, it's more like a, a multi-disciplinary, um, multi-site um, yeah, uh, uh, exploration of a broad topic rather than here's Lee in Perth, you know, solving the problem of pain with predictive processing. So, so I've kind of taken a step back and I've decided to focus on uh, a specific aspect of, um, of something that I think relates quite closely to predictive processing, and that is uh, decision-making around pain. So, so how people with uh, chronic pain make decisions around what painful information means to them. So... Um, I won't, I won't dive into too much detail because, um, yeah, I don't want to give anything away. But, um, but basically, we're looking at whether or not people with uh, chronic pain jump to conclusions about the, the nature of that pain. So um, compared to people who don't have pain. Um, and, and I guess the way that that kind of fits in with this framework of, of predictive processing is that if you have this, uh, this model of your body um, as one that is, is broken, right, um, which we know people with chronic pain often have, right, the information that they're, they're given to make sense of their, their body and their problem is often quite threatening, um, we're thinking that this threatening information affects uh, what the person predicts in terms of pain. So we've come up with this term, the pain expectant internal model. Pain expectant means expecting pain. Internal model mean, meaning this uh, construction that we, we generate in our nervous system that is actively predicting pain or, or nociception or threat in the tissues. And from that prediction, there are physiological and perceptual consequences, right? So we're thinking that uh, I've kind of jumped into the, the nitty gritty here without explaining the broader, broader picture. <laughs> so I'm hoping that I can explain the nitty gritty and then come back out from that and explain the broader 
picture. Um, but generally speaking, what, what we think might be happening um, in any given experience is the person is uh, making a, an unconscious decision as to whether they should trust more their internal model or more the sensory information coming in when it comes to the actions that they select in that moment, as well as um, what they should be experiencing, right? And so if someone has a really rich experience or rich, uh, uh, a number of rich experiences from their past that would suggest that they're broken and that pain is something that is likely for them, then it's likely that during movement, um, during their daily life, that prediction of pain or that internal model is being given precedence over sensory input, right? So it's kind of been uh, assigned more trustworthiness. Like I have all these experiences in my past in which I have had pain doing this. Therefore, it's pretty likely that I'm going to have pain. So we're thinking when it comes to weighing whether or not they can trust their internal model or whether they should trust sensory information coming in, they're more likely to side with the internal model. So in a context in which they're expecting pain, they're more likely to jump to the conclusion of pain rather than sampling more sensory evidence that might, under certain circumstances, update that expectation. Yeah, super fascinating. The, um, it makes a lot of sense that people would want to, or I guess our systems are quite efficient. So if, if we've had prior experiences that have shaped our understanding of ourselves and our bodies, then it's more likely that we will kind of default to that and it would maybe take a lot more kind of different circumstances, different contexts for us to update our priors or our representation because it's it's been strengthened for however many years someone has had persisting pain. So I think it, it, this kind of helps at least me as a clinician understand that maybe it might take more than one session for someone to update their representation of their, their body, of their, of their pain experience. It's, and it might be a little bit longer because understandably so, they've had years of this model, this representation being strengthened by their experiences. So I think that can um, give us a, a bit of hope that it might just take a bit of time and we, we won't be able to see um, I guess, you know, get someone pain-free in, in, in just a few sessions. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important point because you could be working with someone for quite some time and find that progress is very slow. Um, and, and plus we know that, I mean, chronic pain is, is not an easy thing to treat. Um, I think if you're a busy enough clinician, you'll have some people on your timetable that when you see their name you, you, you see them coming up you oh, I don't know you get this kind of like heaviness in your chest right you think like I really want to be able to help this person but I feel as though we're making such slow progress um, and I, I guess you as a as a clinician can feel as though you're not good enough right like if if only I were better then this person would be better but really we're, we're dealing with quite a complex and challenging issue. Um, and we uh, even think about, um, if we're not talking about, uh, you know, pain expectation, right? We're talking about just someone's beliefs, right? Which are 
I guess when I think about uh, an expectation of pain, I don't think that someone's going, I expect pain in this moment, right? I think of it as a lot more subconscious than that. Um, so when, when we're dealing with, with these really sort of almost like hardwired subconscious expectations of threat, right, that are there to ultimately protect us, right? So there's probably this bias toward protection anyway, then it's, it's, it's a real challenge to, to update those expectations. Um, an analogy I like to share with some of my um, patients is imagine that you're walking down like a street in your neighbourhood and you witness a horrific car accident, right? Like you might consciously know, like well and truly down the track, you might consciously know that that street is safe to walk like walk down it's it's as safe as any other street but you might also find that when you walk down that street your heart rate starts to increase you know you become a little bit more aware of of your body um your pupils will probably dilate um you might even start to sweat you know you might start to have shallow breath and that's not because you're consciously deciding to do that you're not like i'm going to recruit all of my sympathetic system right now it's it's your i don't know for lack of a better word it's like your lizard brain kicking into gear trying to protect you um and i, I see pain as, as as more more like that you know it's this very subconscious primal process um it's affected by our cognitions so it's affected by our thoughts and beliefs and expectations but it's it's deeper in the system and um and so that's challenging to, I mean, if it's challenging enough to change someone's explicit beliefs, then, then coming to going to that deeper level and getting them to change this really uh, primal protective response is, is, is arguable, arguably a lot harder. So I think that the takeaway message for that for clinicians is that like, don't, don't beat yourself up if you're, if you're working really hard to try and help someone and you're not noticing much improvement like it's it's a difficult problem that we're dealing with and um yeah I, I just i wouldn't take that personally you know um when i first started i i had to remind myself sometimes that like even the the most highly skilled clinician would be having difficulty here so it's it's it just takes a little bit of pressure off of of you and uh and takes that kind of i don't know makes you feel as though you don't need to be this magic fix all clinician, you know, which we, which we aren't. Absolutely. I think it, it really helps with our longevity in, in the career and we can, can definitely lead to burnout when we take on the responsibility of someone's outcomes solely on ourselves and learning more about the complex nature of pain, such as with predictive processing can, can really help know that's like, we're, we're just, a drop in the ocean, as they say, when it comes to someone's overall experience. And there's lots of other factors outside of our control. So I'm, I'm curious with predictive processing, when you were handed down these, when you were handed these papers at the start of your PhD journey, what were, um, or what are some of the kind of key papers or the key learnings or takeaways when it comes to predictive processing and, and, and pain from our, from our current understanding? Yeah, so I think that's quite a big question. Um, 
there's there's lots that we can take from predictive processing and you know i've been diving into the literature now for two and a two and a bit years and i'm still i'm still learning lots so i have to summarize two and a half years in about 15 seconds go no i'm just joking <laughs> yeah sure yeah uh, <laughs> no this <laughs> is not gonna happen um so all right so there are there are some key points that I think um, uh, are, you know potentially useful to to have in the clinic, and um, I'd say that I'd say that there are some some processes. When I first began, I, I was looking at predictive processing. Um, uh, the three important points that I I thought would uh, where everything kind of stems off from, and people who are astute in this literature we'll, we'll probably hear this and go yeah i mean that's kind of correct but kind of incorrect there's probably other ways of looking at this um but when it comes to so people just starting to explore the literature i think these three points or three concepts are really important uh so the first concept is perceptual inference and the second concept is active inference and then the last concept is precision weighting so it's perceptual inference, active inference, and precision weighting. Um, and they, they are very similar. They all kind of relate, but they, they have uh, different consequences um, to them. So perceptual inference uh, refers to this kind of updating process of, of our internal models. So predictive processing, one of the is a, is a representationalist theory of cognition. So that means that under a predictive processing banner, we, we suggest that the brain is constructing representations. Okay? And these representations are based on our prior experiences. And then there's likely uh, innate representations too that have been kind of handed down from generation to generation in terms of our evolutionary history. Okay, All right. So we construct these internal models based from our experience and that in any given moment, we use our internal models to predict what is most likely to happen next in terms of the flow of sensory information hitting our sensory organs. Okay. So if you think of the nervous system as like a hierarchy, so you've got higher centers, you know, we'll say higher, middle and lower centers, the further down you go, things become a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, uh, uh, variant, you know, so you're thinking of like, um, you know, the prediction of something is, is touching the outside of my skin, right, versus higher level predictions, which might be more abstract, such as, you know, if I get in my car and, and drive 15 min minutes towards home, then I'm going to be home in 15 minutes, or, you know, if I work, then that's going to, give me money in which I can save for retirement, you know, <laughs> like these more abstract predictions that guide action and perception. Um, so there's kind of like a hierarchy to our nervous system and models all through the hierarchy. So predictive processing will suggest. And so one way to kind of think of predictive processing is in contrast to traditional models of perception that would suggest that the way that we experience the world is that we take sensory information in, 
that sensory information is kind of filtered and categorized as it makes its way up through the hierarchy until it reaches a point in the hierarchy where it's like, okay, yeah, that's what I'm looking at or that's what I'm experiencing right now. And then an experience emerges. So it's very much a, a bottom-up process. But predictive processing would kind of flip it on its head and su suggest that actually what we're doing in any given moment is we, we are actively predicting what should be coming next, right? And we experience what we predict we should be experiencing. And then if our predictions don't match with the sensory reality that we are trying to predict, then a prediction error signal is generated and that's sent back up through the hierarchy, right? And the brain can kind of decide whether or not that error signal is meaningful enough or convincing enough in kind of um, in quotes to update its prediction, right? So update its model for future situations that are similar. And this process of predicting, you know, predicting the wrong thing, getting an error signal and then updating your predictions for future encounters is what we kind of refer to as perceptual inference, right? So we're, we're inferring what we should perceive, that's incorrect, and so we update our model. And that's what we kind of think of as perceptual inference. So in the context of pain, I, I like the idea of um, expectation violation, right? Where someone is, you know, predicting that with a given movement, it should be painful. Um, they've got that strong prediction. They, you know, we play around with a few things we maybe get them into a state of curiosity where they're, they're thinking, oh, well, this guy seems to think that it's not going to be painful or it's, it's something interesting is going to happen. I think in that situation, they're going, what's actually happening in my tissues? I'm going to pay attention here. They do the movement. They find it's not painful. That's a huge error signal to that initial prediction, hopefully causing updating of that prediction. Right. So if the prediction was updated in that in that moment, we would say that this is, you know, this is a form of perceptual inference. Awesome. It's like um, another example that we use in our course often is uh, when we see a lemon or think of the word lemon, we have certain associations and representations of what that might be. And then if we imagine ourselves biting into that lemon, we've got a model already. And if imagining if we suddenly bite into the lemon and it was softer and chocolatey that would be quite the prediction error for our system so it's, it's uh, an understanding of the way that people maybe uh, take in stimuli is less so taking in all the stimuli at once and then deciding on what to act upon it's more we've already got representations predictions of what stimuli sh should be based on our experiences um, and it, and then Maybe even uh, I've listened to another podcast where these prediction errors, if we can reframe them as helpful, as uh, guiding our representations and making our representations maybe more accurate, more helpful for our survival, then when it comes to information that can be a bit maybe confusing or confronting or challenging our ideas, we can at least take them in uh, as they are and think of them as more helpful for our learning and for updating our models because we're always aiming to update our models. Yeah, I think you've hit on a really point, uh, important point there. Um, 
And I kind of I kind of think of this as openness to experience. So um, I guess uh, you, you get people. Uh, I've heard referred to as like a fixed mindset. You know, where you you're like, no, this is the way. Um, you can't convince me otherwise. Um, uh, in the context of like the clinic, you get these uh, patients that often come through, and you know they you know they they're quite certain about what the driver of their pain is. Maybe they've had previous experiences with other healthcare professionals who've said that this is why you've got your pain. Um, this is what I'm going to do to fix it. And then they, they might've helped, you know? <laughs> and so the thing about how that would construct a, a strong expectation for, oh, when this pain arises again in the future, that's what I need to, to fix it. Um, and so you, you might have this experience um, Dan, when, you know, you have someone who is, you know, in the state, they're not from the state and they're looking for treatment while they're there. They go, oh, look, my physio or my EP would would um, would always do this for me whenever I had a sore neck and it worked every time. And that's just what I, I want now. Um, and so, I mean, you can you can just do it for them if, if you're able to and you've got the skills to. Um, but, you know, I do get this feeling of like, oh, but, you know, there's other ways and you probably don't need to go and see a therapist to, to, to quote unquote, fix this, that you, you can potentially manage this yourself and you want to introduce this nuance into the discussion, but they're just closed. There's no way that you're going to have that conversation with them. Um, you need to kind of uh, conform to their narrative for that, for that encounter or else it, it's, you know, it's, you're going to have a bad time, you know. <laughs> so... So yeah, you do get these. Uh, these yeah, occasionally you get people who are just very closed to experience, uh, or closed to up, updating, essentially updating their models. And then occasionally you get these uh, patients that are very open to to new ideas and open to experience. And I feel like they're the ones that that do really well. You know, they're the ones that you can kind of. Uh, hypothesis test with in the clinic you can introduce this uncertainty you can introduce nuance um, and you don't have to put your um, paternalistic hat on and occasionally I have to put my paternalistic hat on because you've just got this person who very fixed they want to they want an answer you know you have to kind of provide an answer for them give them that confidence but I don't I don't do too too well in that space I actually feel quite uncomfortable myself in that space so when I have someone who's so curious, wanting to learn and understand their problem better. They're, they're the encounters that I think do really well. Um, and, you know, this is kind of uh, pointing in the direction of my research. So um, I'm looking at this specific bias called the jumping to conclusions bias, right? Um, and, and so I guess a jumping to conclusions bias can be thought of as, you know, reasoning or making decisions with minimal evidence. Right, so fundamentally, you are siding with your current models over sensory evidence, even if that sensory evidence has the capacity to change those models. Um, and you might think, you know, it's, it doesn't make sense. Like, why, why wouldn't you just pay attention to what is potentially happening and try and garner more information? But arguably, these guys, in the thick of their pain, tried that and it was unsuccessful. Right. And so they've, they've, they've learned this really solid strategy of, you know, trying to avoid pain, even potentially before pain 
arises. You know, so you see these like protective guarding behaviors, these anticipatory movements and, and cognitions, thoughts prior to even performing a movement that is painful. And you even get, you know, people experiencing pain and changes in their body, imagining the movements that might be painful too, right? And so you have these really stuck, stuck models. Um, and I wonder if um, that's a general trait in people who have chronic pain. I'm not saying that everybody has this, this general trait, but there is some research to suggest that people with chronic pain have a general tendency to jump to conclusions, um, even with information that's not sort of noxious or related to pain. So there may be this general um, fixed mindset or, or a, 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 a kind of like generally being closed to experience or, or updating their models or, or being kind of open and to understanding their, their problem better, which I don't want to paint people with chronic pain with a, a, a specific brush. I just don't, I don't think this would apply to everybody, but there might be a general, general theme of siding with the models that they have over sensory information coming in. I think I can um, help us maybe pre-frame the experiential learning with curiosity and, and also validating that they're, what they're doing makes sense based on their previous experiences rather than just labeling someone as, I hate this word, non-compliant or, or even, yeah, if we immediately label them as closed-minded, then that kind of doesn't give us many, much hope. But with, this, with our understanding of this, we can further understand why people have these reactions, responses, and why they are so closed because they've had failures going through that way in the past. So if we can maybe look towards opening up that window for them to be explorative and, and curious in a session, and we'll, we'll dive into some ways of doing that. But I wanted to make sure, Lee, did we get the active inference? Um, like what that, so could you explain a little bit more about the, the second part? I'm curious. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, so that's perceptual inference. Um, so active inference is a, an explanation for action through this framework, okay? So um, action under the banner of predictive processing would be seen as predicting the consequences of an action that, prediction of the consequences generates prediction error because you aren't currently in that position, right? And so the, the example that people often use is, you know, I want to reach out and grab a cup of water off the table. I predict the sensory consequences of reaching out to grab the water. I'm not there. So that generates an error signal, right? And we follow that error gradient to complete the task. Right, so as we are completing the task, the prediction error gradient is being reduced to the point where once we've grabbed the water and we've had a drink, then we've kind of we've completed that action cycle. Right, so we're thinking of action as a series of motor predictions about what the consequences of our action will be. Okay, um, and I think you know with pain, you're kind of tying in uh, pain as a potential consequence of of action too so um with you know let's everyone uses the example of forward bending right so say someone gets pain with forward bending they might be standing 
thinking about forward bending and their prediction of the consequences of that action involve pain, right? And so people, people think of um, uh, active inference as, you know, applying to like gross motor movements, so like your, your musculoskeletal system. Um, but, but I've been more recently thinking about the physiological changes that occur in things like central sensitization um, and even, you know, uh, things like neurogenic inflammation as a form of active inference, right? So uh, you're kind of, you're predicting there to be threat in the tissues, right? And one of our responses to threat is an inflammatory response, right? And so it is perhaps we're, we're kind of predicting there to be damage, inflammation, threat in our tissues. And our nervous system is kind of recruiting an inflammatory response through lots of mechanisms. You know, you've got your HPA access, you've got um, various neuroimmune um, processes that the central nervous system can recruit. Um, uh, you've got neurogenic inflammation. You can even think about, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily ascribe to this, but you can think of things like protective muscle guarding as a way of sort of confirming that hypothesis of, of danger by increasing local tension in the area, right? And so you've got this kind of prediction of the way that the state of the body should be. If it's not in that state, then the brain can actually potentially change the, the local physiological environment in such a way that it increases nociceptive traffic, right? So if you're predicting nociception, it may be that these, you know, these like neuro, neurogenic inflammation and these other crazy things that the central nervous system can do might be a way of resolving that prediction error by increasing local inflammation. And it would make sense, right? If you, if you have an injury, right, inflammation is, is an important process, right? We want inflammation to happen in order for healing to happen, right? So it would make sense for the brain, which is fundamentally in the business of keeping our systems within certain physiological bounds or home homeostatic bounds, to be able to do that, to be able to recruit a local inflammatory response, to bring things back to normal. But if you have this persistent stuck expectation of pain or threat, it may be that these processes are being recruited when they really don't need to be anymore. And it kind of contributes to this vicious cycle, right? So if you're predicting pain and threat in the tissue, it's ramping up nociceptive traffic. That's confirming that prediction of pain, right? It's, it's, like, it's like feeding on itself, right? And so uh, I'm starting to think of active inference in that way as well, rather than just gross motor movements. I'm thinking of active inference as a, a potential um, strategy for changing local physiology interesting and, and all in for the purpose of protection or preparing the the system like uh, it, again it's it's it might be uh, survivally adaptive but in the long term it can be maladaptive and that's where we can come in with our understanding and, and try and maybe shape that process yeah yeah so interesting so that so that's active inference if we were to to describe precision weighing and right now i, I wish my cpd points were were active because i could just 
count this as CPD because I'm, I'm learning as we go along, Lee. So thank you. Oh, Precision weighing. Good, man. I, I, I'd like to hear that. Yeah. Um, uh, precision weighting. Um, so, so that's something that kind of ties this all together. Um, and so the way that's often described is the, the brain is not only making predictions about what experience, uh, what sensory information uh, should come next. It's making uh, predictions about how much it can trust that sensory information coming in um, and also how much it can trust that information compared to other sources of information, right? So um, it's sort of saying, uh, it, it, it looks a little bit like attention, right? And so it's the brain kind of deciding well, what is most meaningful right now, right? Given my prize, right? Um, and, and what should I be paying most attention to or what should I trust the most in this moment? Right. So precision weighting works on two levels. So the first level is kind of making a decision about what sensory information should be given the most trust in that moment. And the second way that precision weighting might work is what we've been talking about, and that is making a judgment as to whether or not we can uh, trust our internal model or we should trust the sensory information coming in to to, um, to uh, drive our experience right or to to drive our actions okay um and so where, where i think this is important if we're thinking about pain if someone is actively predicting pain then what we think might be happening is they're placing more weight on, on nociceptive information coming in right so they're saying nociceptive information is highly trustworthy right I'm going to allow that information through. And then the opposite side of the coin is that by allowing that information through, there's kind of a dampening on normal somatosensory information coming in. So they're giving more weight to noxious information and less weight to non-noxious information. And we see this in um, uh, research looking at quantitative sensory testing. So if we get you know lots and lots of people with, let's say, chronic neck pain or chronic back pain, and we look at things like warmth detection thresholds and heat pain thresholds, we notice that there are differences between people who have and do not have chronic pain. Right. So warmth detection thresholds, if I was to put like a thermode on your back, and have it at 32 degrees, which is body temperature, and slowly increase it and say, hey, Daniel, tell me when you first notice it as warm. All right, that's your warmth detection threshold. And it gives us a, a look in at the sensitivity of your system to non-noxious uh, warmth stimuli. Right? Um, and then if I was to keep increasing that temperature, to the point where you felt it as painfully hot. And I said, hey, Dan, tell me when it's painfully hot. And you go there. I mark those two temperatures. And that gives me an idea of your um, sensory sensitivity to noxious and non-noxious sensory information. Right? Non-noxious being the warmth, noxious being the painfully hot. And what we find in people with uh, chronic pain is that their warmth detection threshold is significantly higher than people who don't have chronic pain, right? So it means 
the temperature increases, 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 and then they say at a later time, yeah, that's now warm. So they have less sensitivity to non-noxious information. And then their heat pain thresholds are lower. Right? So there's this kind of narrowing of, of their sensitivities. And when, you, when you're thinking about pain and, or when you're thinking about precision weighting, you're thinking, well, if they are adding or, or assigning more weight to noxious sensory information, you would expect that threshold to come down. And if they were assigning less weight to non-noxious information, you'd expect that threshold to come up. And so what we think might be happening in real time when someone is predicting pain is a narrowing of these measures. Um, and and the, the cool thing about this, I think, is it suggests that when someone is trying to update their model, right, if they're trying to update their model using bottom-up information, right, it suggests that they don't have a lot of bottom-up information to work with or they're just not really assigning um, trustworthiness to that bottom-up information. So when, you, when you're trying to update priors, when you're trying to update these models, you really want to have rich sensory information that suggests safety, so rich non-noxious information that they can use to update those priors. So when we're thinking about physiotherapy or exercise physiology or any kind of profession that works with pain, trying to approach the problem as just a top-down problem. So I don't know, the bastardization of top-down therapy would be like talk therapy. Isn't really going to work, I don't think. And then by the same token, um, just a peripheralist approach where we're focusing on changing the local tissue environment, I don't think that's going to work either. I think it involves and probably not in everybody because everybody's um, situation is unique. But I think one of the fundamental takeaways from predictive processing would be that we need to get people in a state in which they're open to experience, right? They're kind of essentially not assigning high weight to noxious information. They're going, what's really happening here? And then providing them with rich movement experiences or potentially manual therapy experiences that bombard their system with non-noxious information, right? And if you can do that in contexts where they are expecting pain, right? So if they're expecting pain and then their system is bombarded with non-noxious sensory information, then that should be a really powerful learning signal and, and allow them to, like, over time, I don't think it really happens in a single session, although I have heard stories of this happening, um, allow them to update their model um, and start, hopefully, start searching for non-noxious sensory information themselves in their own time. <laughs> you know, oh, that was an interesting experience. I've never tried bending forwards and it ended up not being painful for me. And then later on that day, you know, they drop a pen on the floor or something and they're like, hmm, I wonder if that'll happen again, you know, and then, oh, it happened again, you know, or they're, you know, they're out playing with their kids and they realise I bent down and I picked up my kid and, like, I didn't actually feel pain in that moment. Like, there's more to the picture than this. And then the next time they come into the clinic, they talk to you and you can open up the conversation a little bit further and it becomes a really healthy exchange. Um, and so... Yeah, do you feel like um, that was a good sort of 
a summary of precision weighting? Yeah, definitely. And, and also the implications of creating that safe environment at the start for someone to be open to the experience and to be mindful, aware of the stimuli coming in. Because I'm not sure about your experience in clinic, but you, you do um, notice some people may not be present in the room or they may have these representations that are so, so, so strong that's very difficult for them to take in any other information um, in, in general when it comes to movement, when it comes to any kind of therapy and intervention. So I think um, framing it in this way is a lot more helpful because to, to be clear, we're, we're not necessarily um, aiming to fix their pain away. We're just creating that safety for them to explore their their systems, their movement, their body in a, in a new and novel and curious way. Have I kind of got that on the right track? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and so, I mean, it, the cool thing about this is there are so many ways in which you can start to introduce a little bit of uncertainty um, from the beginning of your interaction, you know. So um, last time we spoke, we we spoke a bit about the practice I was working in at the time, which was um, in a focus physiotherapy, um, which is which is essentially like a yoga studio, but physiotherapy practice. So so people would walk in, uh, sometimes expecting a standard physiotherapy clinic, and find this open room with no plinths and like yoga mats rolled up in the corner. Um, we have like a a fold-out plinth that we can take out if we need to do that sort of thing. But generally speaking, when people walk in, they're, they're seeing a movement space, right? And so I, I like to think of that as starting to disrupt the models already, right? If you put someone in a, let's say someone has a 15-year history of pain um, and they've been seeing physios um, or EPs or anyone during that time, They've been going to you know, standard clinics, um, waiting in the waiting room, um, coming through, seeing the anatomical models and the posters on the wall. Um, and I think that these clinics do have a place. And um, I wouldn't, if, if that works for people and that their treating framework, they feel comfortable treating that way and, and confident treating that way, then keep doing what you're doing. Um, but I, um, I would find that just coming in and seeing that the practice is quite different was enough to open the door to new information. Um, and I, I had a few people come in just from the street, um, like knocking on the door, like, oh, can I come in and just have a look around? And so what you guys are doing in here looks kind of interesting. I saw it said physio, but, you know, this looks quite, you know, this is strange. Like, what are you guys doing here? And uh, I think that, you know, it's not, the, it's not necessary in order to have a good clinical interaction, but it it might start to prime somebody for novel information if they're stead, if they're stepping into a novel setting. And if we're thinking about active inference, right, where we're thinking about, you know, we're predicting the kinds of actions we're likely to take in given environments, right? So if someone walks into a gym environment, they're gonna start, well, I'm I'm They'll predict, well, I'm, it's likely that I'm going to be moving around <laughs> in this environment. I'm going to be doing movement. Um, and so I kind, of, I kind of like that approach. Um, 
I don't, I don't believe it's the, the only way you can start to introduce uncertainty into the clinical encounter. Um, I remember hearing a psychologist talking about um, how, how to change people's minds on things. And, and one, one interesting uh, idea that came up, I don't know if this is verified. I, I'm, not, I'm not around the, the science when it comes to this specific idea. But he, he said, if you get someone to make an argument for their, for, for their belief, right, and you get them to say, all right, can you make, like, maybe make three points about this thing? Um, at the end of the three points, they often, they report that they're more sure about their initial belief, right? But if you say, all right, can you make 10 points about your belief? right even though they, they might get to like six seven eight right but at six seven eight they're starting to go oh, i can't really think of any more right and so at the end of 10 they re they report less confidence in their initial beliefs right so even though they made like six or seven points so twice as many points as they did in the previous task they they feel less confident so i don't know i don't know about um about you, but when I think about that, it makes me think of you know very open form discussion, right? Where you're getting people to to really dive into their problem, right? So we have this tendency to try and jump in and explain. We're like, I think what what's the? It's like five seconds or something, and then the physiotherapist will jump in and say, "Oh, I reckon this is what's going on." But if we spend more time, like getting people to really talk about their their problem right and their beliefs and and like non-judgmentally continue to ask them open questions like all right what what does that mean for you like okay um can you tell me a little bit more about this i reckon that might be a way of starting to introduce uncertainty right because eventually they'll get to a point where they're just, they're just like, i don't i don't actually really know you know and i've had i've had people where i had one guy he he um well, thinking maybe should I bring this up? <laughs> he might listen to the podcast. <laughs> You're too famous now, Lee. Um, but I wanted to circle back a little bit because I'm noticing a term that you've been um, mentioning, which is uncertainty. And that's something that we try and instill with in terms of our clinical practice, that there is ambiguity, there is uncertainty, there is no black or white kind of protocol-based system to that helps fix all ailments and there's no magic cure as such. So this is something that we would like to communicate um, and normalize amongst not only our clients and patients, but also our colleagues when it comes to clinical practice. Um, and the way that you framed it is quite interesting. It's, it's something that's new to me. So you're already creating some prediction errors in my system here um, where it's, where we're actually facilitating that uncertainty. Um, so, so, I think it's 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 almost against what we uh, are. I don't know about your experience, but in many in many uh, contexts, we are taught to create that certainty. We want confidence. We want a clear answer to our problems, and we want to appear as though we know the answer. But what you're doing, and, and through the knowledge of predictive processing, is almost flipping that on its head. We are creating that curiosity and that exploration where. Um, in a playful, explorative uh, way with the person's willingness and consent, we are, uh, yeah, manipulating a few variables in the context where 
playing around we're, we're allowing that openness that exploration when we're not really um jumping in at all interfering or um as you mentioned interrupting the process uh from the start so, so i'm loving these ideas it's already a, a change in terms of the framework that maybe a lot of clinicians have where we we revel we we want to be certain that's our role yeah yeah man um i think that's a, a really astute observation and it's it's something that i remember going through through uni and um one of the key messages was that with each patient you want to provide a uh, a diagnosis a prognosis and a management plan and i think you know that that is really useful information for a lot of people um but when it comes to chronic pain it's just so hard to do that right providing a diagnosis like why why do you have chronic pain what's the diagnosis very hard um prognosis like we've had it for 15 years if you were to to judge what the person's future is going to be like with a 15-year pain history like and it potentially not very good and we look at the evidence and we it, it's kind of quite makes you feel quite pessimistic about the management of chronic pain i'm optimistic about the management of chronic pain but if you look at the research it's not great and then you know, in terms of a management plan i don't believe it's a good idea to confine yourself to a single management plan Right, to say like this is what we're going to do and this is what I expect, especially in chronic pain, because if if things go off track, which they most likely are, then you've you've created the you've created the track and you've just, you're almost going to stick on the track that you've created for yourself. And so I try and introduce uncertainty right from the beginning, and say, I mean, uh, I heard, uh, and I also think that that means that you might not be the person to help them as well, um, which is very hard for us as clinicians to kind of to, to hand over care to somebody else. There might be financial reasons why you don't want to do that, but there might also be, you know, you might have formed a relationship with them. Um, there, might, there might also be a bit of, you know, ego there too, like I should be able to help this person. Um, and so, you know, if I, if I can introduce uncertainty at the beginning and have people comfortable with that then it's more you're more but you're both going on this kind of learning journey together and you can you can then admit in situations that you're not sure <laughs> and that that's okay and we'll figure it out together and i had this experience with my students i mean it applies to so many areas of life like i had this experience with my students uh yesterday because i'm doing some teaching at the moment so i'm teaching pain and they, they came to me and they said, hey, Lee, like, I'm having so much difficulty with this unit at the moment. Like, I don't know what central sensitization means. I don't know what peripheral sensitization means. And there's just so many terms. It's really hard for me to, to understand it. And I said, I said to them, like, like, I'm okay with you guys not understanding this at the moment. You know, like, pain is a really complex topic. And we are introducing a lot of terms we're only four weeks in and we've got the rest of the semester to figure this stuff out together but the fact that you don't understand it now does not concern me right 
I want you to apply yourself and dive into this stuff and, and try to understand it. And by trying to understand it, you'll get the insights. And I think it's similar with, with chronic pain management. It's like, well, we're not going to commit to one specific pathway. We're going to work together and try different things and see what happens. And Andrew Hammond, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, with him. He's, um, he's got a podcast, uh, Be a Better PT podcast and he's um he's quite he's quite um a good educator as well um and he he had uh, I listened to when i listened to his podcasts i, I love them and listened to them all within the space of a week and he um he said something really nice that stuck with me and it's that often what he'll say to patients when they first start start up with him is that i'm, I'm going to do my very best to help you um, but if I can't, then I'm going to help you find someone who can. And so you're setting up this expectation from the beginning that I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to be your fix, right? But I'm going to help you try and find strategies. And if I can't, then I'm going to help you find some, someone else who can. So you're not locking yourself into being that person's saviour, <laughs> which I think is just, we just, we aren't. And there are definitely situations where, we can make a huge impact in someone's life. And that's what keeps me in the profession, honestly. Like it's great when you have those moments with people, but that's not going to be the reality for everybody that you see. And I think if you're upfront and honest at the beginning of the consultation or the beginning of your kind of forging a relationship with them, then, then you're, you're, you're actually going to set yourself up for success. I, I, I don't know. That's That's the way that I'm... That's why I feel anyway. Absolutely. There's, there's a value in pre-framing and helping normalize the uncertainty from the start so that you can both, both the clinician and the patient can be adaptive according to how the journey is going rather than us kind of um, putting on a paternalistic hat and saying, this is the way to go. This is the management plan. We're going to stick to it. Because in a way, if we're using predictive processing, maybe that might um, kind of stop us from updating our own models or representations or our working diagnosis or working prognosis of what might be occurring. So we could be quite fixed in, in our own kind of management plans from the start. Um, and I'm, I'm curious when it comes to interventions through this framework, so talking about, we can talk about movement, mindful movement, manual therapy, um, how might it look um, through the lens of predictive processing? Yeah, so I guess there are a few ways that I could answer that question. I, I would say that it doesn't point toward one specific intervention over another. Um, one thing it does introduce is complexity, um, which is nothing nothing new, but it gives a a mechanism to why these things are complex, right? So when you're thinking about, you know, let's say someone's uh, prediction of pain with a given movement, that prediction is fed by other internal models, right? So they they don't or and and sensory information available to the person at that time, right? And so when you're thinking of an experience of pain, where we're saying that pain is 
is not just a pain expected internal model predicting pain. It's all these other things that are likely feeding into that prediction of pain. Uh, this is where like the explain pain model comes in quite nicely. You know, you've got your dims and sims. Um, and so I, I would suggest that that framework fits in by, by thinking of dims as contributing to the prediction of pain and sims kind of predict, uh, contributing to either the kind of turning down of that prediction, if you want to think of this stuff as really, uh, think of it really simply. Um, so so I, I'd encourage people to you know, dive into um, the concepts of explain pain if they haven't already and try and think of it um, within the framework of predictive processing as I think it works quite well. Um, but one thing I found with explain pain is that um, when it came to the movement side of things, so there's, there's some exercises at the back of explain pain and there's this advice to kind of generally keep moving. But the, the exercises aren't, overly inspiring <laughs> and you know that's that's fine i don't think their job in that book was to provide a comprehensive guide on how to move um, and so I, I would encourage you that if people are wanting to um you know apply movement to to someone who has chronic pain i think that the more contemplative movement practices are really well suited so um, things like uh, you can think of pilates as you know potentially like a contemplative movement practice people are paying attention to their body and and it does have sometimes a really dodgy narrative that comes with pilates but if you throw that dodgy narrative to the side <laughs> you know holding everything together i don't think that's what's really happening um, but but make it more about awareness um, then I think that that could be really potentially beneficial for someone who has chronic pain. Um, I, I like to use yoga because it's you've got the breath involved and, you know, that helps people to relax and uh, often the movements are pretty low load and, that, and, and not very uh, stressful, so it allows them to pay attention to, to what's really happening. Um, it, it means that, you know, in terms of that like lizard brain that's trying to protect you, you can kind of calm that lizard brain down for a moment. Um, and so I'll, I'll get people doing movements that uh, are threatening to them without them even realising that they're doing them. So, you know, people might be afraid to flex their spine, but I'll get them doing like four point rock back. So they're on all fours and they rock their back back and they're going into like full flexion there, but they don't, they don't realise that they're doing it. And so I might do some of that and then some cat cows and some knees to chest and all the time, like bringing people's attention to their bodies. So saying, all right, what can you say? I'm doing knee rolls. I might say, all right, well, what does it feel like at the moment for you to be rolling your knees from side to side? Right. What, what are you feeling, you know, in terms of like pressure changes on your back as you roll from side to side? And they go, oh, look, it kind of feels like a bit of a massage. I noticed that, you know, is it, it's like feels quite nice as I'm getting some pressure through my back. Yeah, cool. All right. I want you to focus on that for, let's just do this for another minute or so. I want you to just keep your attention on it. When you notice your attention is, you know, you, you start thinking about what you're going to have for dinner tonight, just bring your attention back to what's happening there. And then just play around with that. And after like, let's say we do 20 minutes of that. Like that is 20 minutes worth of them moving and soaking up non-noxious sensory information i think that can be really uh powerful for people um 
and, uh, and I guess there's plus the physiological consequences of moving. Um, and then you can you can move into like strength training, for example, where you know you're getting people challenging their body, working really hard, right? And I think that that might be a really nice way to build resiliency in the person too. So if they have these models of themselves as being fundamentally broken, right, and you put a barbell on their back and get them to do a squat and that's fine, it's like, well, what does that tell you about your body, right? So that could potentially be an opening to start updating these models as well. Um, you know, think about manual therapy. Um, I think the traditional narratives of manual therapy are... Uh, potentially harmful, uh, if I'm honest. Um, you know, telling people that you know that, that we're literally putting things back into place, or we're you know stripping fascia. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that that's helpful at all. Um, and I, I'd argue that that's you know contributing to this perception of threat. But manual therapy, in which you're you're you know getting people to pay attention to the part that's sore, um, if you're doing it in such a way that they feel really confident with you. And they trust you, then I think that trusting relationship is also very therapeutic. Um, if you're able to show someone that in a short period of time their pain is modifiable, then that also tells them something interesting about their pain, especially if they're like, yeah, my back is sore because I have, um, you know, as a spondylo, um, uh, you know, I've got a spondy or something in my back. Um, you're like, well, okay, let's let's we'll do a little bit of manual therapy. Fifteen minutes later, they're feeling better. Um, it could open up the conversation about you know what do you reckon that did for your your spondy? You know, oh, I don't I don't know. I feel like that's pretty fixed. You know, I was like, well, it actually it it is. You know, so I don't think that your spondy is the only reason why you're experiencing pain. You know, it, it may open up that conversation there about pain being more more complex. Um, yeah, what else? I mean, um, I, I don't know. I, I reckon that it's, um, I don't think predictive processing points in the direction of one specific treatment. It's more of like a uh, an overarching framework in which we can um, begin to make sense of the treatments that we're currently using and perhaps improve the treatments that we're currently using. It uh, reminds me of, I wonder how many overlaps there might be speaking to uh, maybe someone who uses exposure therapy or kind of works with people who have experienced um, traumatic incidences and, and they, they have these kind of priors and these really strong representations. So I think it's, it's a great way of, of framing the process and the principles can be the same across all kind of interventions if we're trying to facilitate, promote that uncertainty and that curiosity for them to be willing to explore their movements and their body. Um, and then we are using mindfulness-based movements or interventions to getting them to actually uh, be aware of the, the, the inputs, the stimuli that's coming in. So then we can have that open conversation towards the end that they can maybe, um, yeah, poke holes at their priors or, or uh, question some of the strong representations that they've had. And, like you said, this can be through many different approaches, many different interventions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that um, predictive processing will necessarily um, 
rock the boat too much in terms of the interventions that people are providing. Um, I mean, it, it may do. It may do. Um, I, I would take a guess that most of the listeners for TKEX would be, you know, thinking about pain in a, in a nuanced way um, and wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't be kind of focusing on these more reductionist methods of, of help you know, treating people. I'm reluctant to say helping people. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and that, you know, uh, I also, I think one thing that predictive processing doesn't suggest, um, and it doesn't suggest that we should focus all of our attention on the brain either. Um, so uh, I, I guess uh, these more neurocentric models of care, I don't actually believe that fits with predictive processing, right? And one, um, one reason for that is so having treatments that are specifically targeting the brain directly, you know, things like uh, laterality training, greater motor imagery and stuff, I think that they're, they're wonderful treatment options. Um, but I don't think that, and, and the research suggests that they're not the kind of be all end all. Um, as well as, you know, things like talk therapies, um, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, acceptance commitment therapy. If it, was, if it was just the talking, clearly we're missing something there. Um, and a way I like to kind of think about it is, you know, thirst is an experience that we have, right? Just like pain is an experience. Thirst is an experience, but we don't, you know, fix thirst by, you know, you know, th thirst motor imagery or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's a terrible example. But we, we fix thirst by, you know, providing our bodies with, with water, <laughs> right? And so I kind of think of pain in a, in a similar way. We're not these disembodied brains, right? We, we have these bodies. And so if we're, if we're wanting to um, help someone in pain, then we have to really think about their whole body, and their whole body health is influenced by the environments that they find themselves in, including their social environment. So we, we, we almost have to, to think about the, the whole person as, you know, Peter O'Sullivan and JP Canero would say as a, um, uh, what do they call it? Like an, an organism, you know, we're like, like an a, ecosystem, a, like a ecosystem. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> an ecosystem. The body is an ecosystem. Um and uh, and not and not as these and not thinking of them as a brain or not thinking of them as just a body without a without a, a brain that's trying to make sense of the body. So predictive processing, if anything, it it just suggests that we need to be nuanced in our thinking about the treatments we select. Yeah, and I'm sure you've sparked some curiosity in the way that we can approach the the process of opening up these uncertainties with with clients and maybe instead of shying away from uncertainty we're trying to maybe promote that from the very start and how we can look at how our context can shape the expectations and and also the, the questions that you mentioned like what does it mean then about your spondy or what does it mean reflecting back based on this new experience what does that mean about your priors or your your diagnosis or what you've been told about your pain. So I think it's it's really uh, hammered down that fact and I'm sure it's inspired people to think about um, 
the nuances of their own treatments. Yeah. Yep. I think so. Um, yeah. Getting people to, to reflect is, is really helpful. I think, you know, taking them out of um, system one and putting them into to system two um, as often as possible. And, and, you know, trying to make that almost like a, a, a natural reflex that they have. Um, yeah. At least my, my experience is that, uh, the patients that I've worked with that are very, uh, they very naturally think about what's going on, are curious, are um, open to novel information. Uh, the ones that track quite well, um, and then others that I've worked with that are quite fixed. Um, and it may just be that I'm not offering the service that suits their narrative, right? Um, and, and they're just never going to get better with me, you know. Um, but they, they tend to not, not really make much of, of a change. Um, and I've, I've had to have conversations with people like that and say, hey, look, I mean, this, is, this is kind of the sphere in which I, I operate, um, but I can recommend some physios locally that it might be better suited to what you're looking for. Is that what you'd like me to do? And people are like, yeah, that's, that would be great, thanks. And they're often very, like, thankful that I'm, like, actually there to, like I want to help them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know why I went down that, that track. There. <laughs> it's like a, you were so open to, to being okay with like handing over that, that person's care to someone else. And I think that's, yeah. it's an, it's a role modeling behavior that we can all look at um, reflecting on our own practice that we might not be the person who the client is open to having a new experience with for various reasons. But um, I think we've, we've covered predictive processing quite well. I'm, I'm super excited to see how your journey PhD journey goes Lee. And for those who are interested in contact you, finding out a bit more about your work, where can we find you? Yeah, sure. It's been a really good chat today, Dan. Um, and I hope I was able to shed some light on predictive processing. Um, yeah, try and use fairly, you know, uh, common words to describe these things. And I think in the process, it it might take away a little bit from what what predictive processing actually is. So for the hardcore PP fans out there. Um, just keep that in mind. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope I hope um, I hope the listeners learnt learnt something today. Um, if you wanna, yeah, if you wanna keep in touch um, or just you know kind of keep the finger on the pulse, my research and the things that I'm sharing and what I'm thinking about, then Twitter's probably the best way to do that. Um, I find myself on Twitter probably too often. <laughs> um, I'm reminded of that, like uh, the guy on his deathbed, like oh, I wish I, I wish I just tweeted more, you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm that guy. Um, my, my handle is L Schneider, um, L S C H N E I D E R P T. Um, or just look up Lee Schneider, and you'll be able to find me on there. Uh, I also put some stuff up on Instagram, um, Lee Schneider Physio, um, but mostly that's just pictures of my dog. Um, <laughs> so yeah if you're interested in pictures of a two and a half kilogram 
chihuahua looking cute, then yeah, that's where you'll find Sold. those. Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll put that in the show notes and yeah, keen to keep this conversation going and, and see where predictive processing takes us all in our clinical practices. So thank you for your work, Lee, and very keen to hear more and until next time. Yeah, th- thanks, Dan. It was a good chat.